0: Three two one. Dude, I was alright. You see how stupid we are? <laughs> oh, wait, we're going right now? Yeah, I was alright. I had I'm record, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not going to delete it or anything. Wait, he okay. <laughs> no, like, not when your brother came in here to show okay. us his hot pocket that was lacking in color. <clears throat> okay, y'all. <laughs> Let's all settle down. You like, right before I hit the record button, Nicholas, Alex's little brother, oh comes walking in to show me that, Mom, you know how Hot Pockets are always, like, darker? Well, this one isn't. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. Alright. Let's start the episode Let's get now. this started. Play the intro. Um, no, not yet. It's not time. You don't be telling me what to do. I'm a grown woman. I'm a grown man now, so i can say i can give you suggestions okay i'm just gonna go ahead and say that this this is supposed to be like the midweek mini but it's not gonna be all that mini okay there's just so much to this story but i feel like i have to kind of make up because last week i didn't do a midweek mini and i felt guilty about it later Mm -hmm. but i was so tired I was Sleep. so tired. But anyway, so what we're going to talk about today is this. When I was a little kid, a long time ago. Back in the 1950s. No. I know. Anyway, when I was a little kid, I watched this, this. movie that was based on actual events. It was called Guyana Crime of the Century. Now, it aired in 1979, so I was like seven years old, she was but two. It, it made this lasting impression on me, and I, I guess you can probably guess it was about Jim Jones, and you probably know that name very well. You can be John John. Alex don't know who Jim Jones is, and I'm not talking about <laughs> the rapper Jim Jones. I didn't. Uh. All right. But anyway, today, we're going to take a stroll down memory lane Maybe. and revisit Guyana. Intro. They don't tell me what to do. No. Triple M Studios proudly presents Midweek Mini, and here's your host, Andrea Lee. Alright, welcome back for another episode. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to put our serious faces on now. Probably won't last. two minutes. I mean, you can only breathe so long under a mask. But anyway, so I honestly believe that back then in 1979 when I watched that movie, when I was 7 years old, I think that's probably when my interest in like mass murderers and serial killers and cults, that interest was peaked um now I'm not saying that I want to do what these people have done my whole thing with is is mostly the psychology of like what makes these people act like this or do these things um and like how like these crimes are solved but but now I'm kind of getting away from what I was talking about um but anyway like in the jim jones case you know it fascinates me that he could essentially brainwash so many people into committing suicide with only a you know like a few people like realized that hey this isn't right you know i and i have never understood the thing with cults because i'm so hard-headed that i just can't imagine somebody convincing me to do stuff like that i mean i'm just like you don't tell like alex said cue the intro and i'm like you don't tell me what to do you don't do that (laughs) but anyway i've just never understood you know um the mentality of a person that gets caught up in a cult and gets brainwashed like that so who was this man named jim jones jim jones well i'm gonna tell (laughs) you all right Alex. This is not a funny story. I'm not laughing. Zip your lip. James Warren Jones was born May the 13th of 1931. So this this all started out pretty good long time ago. He was born in a rural rural area of Indiana. His dad was James Thurman Jones and his mom was Lynetta Putnam. Putnam. Yeah, I should have kept my mouth shut. You unzipped your lip. Anyway, he was born during the Great Depression, and he grew up in a shack without plumbing. I mean, we have a water main break here, and the kids go ballistic. Like, I can't have no water. I can't flush the toilet. (coughs) Anyway, this is how he grew up. No plumbing. And I mean, that's how a lot of people grew up back in those days. But anyway... He loved to read, and he spent a lot of his time studying Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, Mahatma Gandhi, and Adolf Hitler. He also developed a deep interest in religion. The few friends that he had, and he had very few friends, okay, when he was a kid, but they described him as the really weird kid who was obsessed with religion and death. I know. Like, Michael Myers. Nah, he went and... Never mind. Anyway, he'd often hold funerals for small animals on his parents' property, and it's been said that he stabbed a cat to death. So, that's the part that reminded me of, of Michael Myers. But anyway... Jim claimed that his father was associated with the KKK, which had become quite the thing to do during the Great Depression for whatever reason, um, but they, him and his dad would often have arguments about race issues, um, and he stopped, actually, he stopped talking to his dad for a very long time after his dad refused to let one of his African American friends in his house. Now, not long after that, his parents separated and Jim moved away with his mom to Richmond, Indiana. And in 1948, Jim graduated early from Richmond High School with honors. So, if he graduated early, he he has to be a pretty smart dude. Yeah. You know? Smart man. Well, after school, he went to work as an orderly at Reed Hospital. and Senior management just held him in high regards. They thought he was, you know good hard worker but it was also known that he had once gotten really rough with a patient that was in traction while he was shaving the man and it caused the man to become injured now while he was working there now now as far as i know he never like was punished for you know hurting that patient but anyway while he was working there at reed hospital he met a nurse by the name of Marceline Baldwin, and in nineteen forty nine she became his wife. Soon they relocated to Bloomington, Indiana, where he attended Indiana University in Bloomington. It was there it was there that he was impressed by a speech that the first lady Eleanor Roosevelt gave there about the, the plight of African Americans. In nineteen fifty one he and his wife moved again and this time they moved to indianapolis where for two years he attended indiana university and then he started taking night classes at butler university and that's where he earned his degree in secondary education well when he was 20 years old he started attending gatherings that was held by um the communist party usa in indianapolis After becoming upset because his mother was being harassed by the FBI after attending an event that focused on Paul Robeson, or Robeson, maybe it's Robeson, and um, after becoming frustrated with persecution of accused communists in the United States, he started wondering what he could do about this, and the answer he came up with was, infiltrate the church. Basically, with communism, okay? Now, it was basically just a big scam from the beginning. Now, in 1952, Jim became a, a student pastor at Somerset Southside Methodist Church. But he left after claiming that the church wouldn't let him integrate African Americans into the church. And it was also around that time that he witnessed a faith healing service and noticed how those types of service uh, uh, services that attract like large numbers of people and their money. And it was then that he decided that this would help him accomplish his social goals by profiting off of the people who would attend his faith healing services. Now, Jim organized a revival type service to take place. Um, and that was in, like, June the 11th through the 15th of 1956 at Cato Tabernacle in Indianapolis. Well, since his name wasn't out there yet, you know, he nobody knew who he was as a, as a preacher. He worked it so that he would share the pulpit with another healing evangelist named Reverend William a. M. Branham. And um, he was kind of how there, like, among the names of like oral roberts because i mean if you remember or- uh, oral roberts was a pretty famous um faith healer back in the day but anyway Branham was up there with him well after that took place jim decided to organize his own church and he named it the people's temple christian church full gospel but that was later shortened to just a people's temple now like i said earlier jim had studied adolf hitler and he continued to study him and father devon so that he could learn to manipulate the people of his church during the 1960s he was appointed as the director of the local human rights commission and while he was asked to keep a low profile he completely ignored that advice of did. He, yeah he started using like tv and radio to share his views it was also during that time that he worked on integrating churches restaurants um telephone company uh the indianapolis police department a theater an amusement park and the indiana university health methodist hospital um but it was still the 60s and he received a lot of backlash for his views on integration so somebody painted a swastika on the temple and a stick of dynamite was left on a pile of coal at the temple And somebody even threw a dead cat at his house after he received a bunch of threatening phone calls. So people were just... You know, back in the 60s was, you know, the time of the civil rights movements. And uh, people weren't ready for, like, integration. You know, like, um, people going to school together and church together and shopping together, eating together, whatever. They, They were still stuck in the whites only thing you know yeah um and so they were lashing out at him because he was ready to you know bring the different races together but anyway through the years jim and marceline decided to they expand their family and they adopted several non-white children and they referred to their family as their rainbow family Afterwards, Jones stated, integration is a more personal thing with me now. It's a question of my son's future. In 1954, a daughter named Agnes was adopted, and she was part Native American. In 1959, the Joneses adopted three Korean-American children named Lou, Stephanie, and Suzanne. Then they took it a step further and started encouraging members of the temple to adopt orphans from war-torn korea so they wanted them like you know adopting people too and the only biological child they had at that point was born the same year that they adopted the the three korean-american children that was in 1959 and they named the little boy Stephen gandhi two years later they became the first white couple in the state of indiana to adopt an african-american child and they named him james warren jones jr which was jim's name so they didn't name their flesh and blood kid after the dad they named one that they adopted after him i just i don't know i just found that kind of (laughs) odd they also adopted a white son whose mother was a member of the temple for a while the family moved to brazil and tried to establish the people's temple there he studied the economy there and he was very careful as to not portray himself as a communist in a foreign land so instead of talking about castro or Marx, he spoke of an apostolic communal lifestyle and after a few years of living there he started feeling guilty because he had basically just abandoned the temple back in indianapolis and everything that it had stood for and after his associate pastors that were still there told him that the temple was about to collapse without him he decided to move his family back to indiana Well, when he returned to the temple in Indiana, and this part is just kills me. He told the members of the temple that the world would be involved in a nuclear war on July the 15th, 1967. I mean, he had the exact date of of when this nuclear war was going to happen. But anyway, this nuclear war, it would lead to a socialist Eden on Earth. And to be safe, they needed to move the temple to Northern California. So what do they do? Like any good flock, they just pack their stuff and they move to the Redwood Valley in Northern California. Now, in the early 1970s, Jim started preaching that Christianity was a flyaway religion. And at one time, he was even quoted as saying, if you're born in capitalist America, racist America, fascist America, then you're born in sin. But if you're born in socialism, you're not born in sin. Now, he also started rejecting the Bible. And he said that it was a tool to suppress women and non-white people. And then he turned around and he wrote this booklet that was called The Letter Killeth. And in it, he criticized the King James Version of the Bible. But this wasn't enough for old Jim. He began preaching... That he was the reincarnation. Now, Alex, get this. He was the reincarnation of Father Divine, Mahatma Gandhi, Jesus, Buddha, and Vladimir Lenin. So, how about that? He was like, all five of these people all rolled into one. He was reincarnated as all five of those people. (laughs) I mean this man was clearly off his rocker because in 1976 in a telephone interview he told now all this is in one conversation he told the person on the phone that he was talking to that he was first of all he was agnostic and then he turned around and said that he was an atheist in the same conversation now he claimed to be both of those in that same conversation after he had just said that he was the reincarnate of those five that i mentioned earlier now you can't see me out there y'all but i am rolling my eyes (laughs) now the following year his wife marceline said in a new york times interview that jim was actually trying to promote marxism in america and he was using religion to do it i don't know if he told her to say that or if she just kind of blurted that out or what but it kind of seems like they would have held that in a little bit longer but anyway five years after the temple relocated to california they went through such a growth that they had to open branches of the temple in san fernando san francisco and los angeles and eventually they moved the temple's headquarters from where they were in northern california um down to san francisco which is still in northern california but anyway because there was like space for expansion there um where there wasn't in the first place that they had settled um now after they moved the headquarters to san francisco the temple became influential in the city's politics and as a matter of fact they were very they had a very significant impact on the election of george moscone i think that's how you say it as the mayor in 1975 well after moscone was appointed was um elected as mayor he turned around and um appointed jim as the chairman of the san francisco housing authority commission now in that position he was able to come into contact with some very prominent politicians on the local and national levels just before the 1976 presidential election jim jones met with vice president candidate walter mondale on his campaign airplane which led mondale to publicly praise the temple and i would just really like to know what was said on that airplane because i mean he jim jones's name was out there but i'm sure that all he was about was not out there So, I would really like to know what the conversation was for Mondale to come out and, like, you know, publicly praise him and stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, Former First Lady Rosalind Carter, she met with him on several occasions, and she even corresponded with him about Cuba. So, it wasn't just everyday people who were in some way manipulated by Jim Jones. Um, Like I said... They, he had to, I don't know, he had some kind of way about him, I guess. So, now that we know who Jim Jones was, and more importantly, the type of person he was, let's get to the main course. All of that was just the appetizer, so now we're going to talk about Jonestown. Now, after an article was published in a magazine called New West, that article was written by Marshall um, Kilduff. Now, Jim and several hundred of his followers suddenly just moved to Guyana after that article was published in that magazine, and they officially called this place that they moved to the People's Temple Agricultural Project, but it was what we called, like, came to know as Jonestown. Now, apparently, Kilduff's article contained accusations of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, and So, I guess just, like, packing up and moving to a whole other country just made them look innocent, huh? Yeah. I mean, that don't look guilty at all, you know? Uh, Let's just move to another country after we've been accused of all these horrible things, you know? Jonestown had actually started being built a few years before that article was published. um, But, you know, now they had to go there. Um, Now, he promoted it as a place to build a socialist paradise and a sanctuary from the proven eyes of the media in san francisco but the reality of it was it was built to serve as a model communist community and he even said that the temple encompassed the purest communist uh communists there were like the people that lived in jonestown were the most pure communist ever that makes no sense i know i know um but things weren't really so pure inside that compound um members of the temple they weren't allowed to leave the commune i mean that you know they couldn't fr- freely come and go they couldn't leave if they wanted to um i guess if they wanted to leave they would probably just have to like sneak out like in the dead of night or something but he even claimed that he and his followers would all die together, move to another planet. Move to another planet, Alex. to Mars. And live blissfully. When so, Mars. if his followers didn't see him as a nut job before that, you would think this would be the major eye-opener. And I guess for some that it was. Um, now, I know they were probably brainwashed, but like I, I said earlier, he studied ways to manipulate people but don't you think at some point you're just like, they ain't nothing right about this, you know? Let's go. Let's go to Mars. That's what so. he wanted. Well, <clears throat> he didn't say Mars, but he wanted you know to move planet. To... I, I just don't understand. But anyway, oh, yeah, now there was some who did defect from the temple, and among them was um, a lady named Grace Stowen and her husband Timothy. Now, Jim claimed that he was the biological father of their child, even though Grace and Timothy's name was on the child's birth certificate. Now, she left the temple in 1976, and this was before any of, like, I think it was before they had started moving into that place in Guyana. But anyway, she left in 1976, and she filed for divorce. Well, Jim, he ordered Timothy to take the child to Jonestown so there wouldn't be a messy custody dispute with Grace. Well, in June of 1977 timothy finally wakes up like he's like this is not right and he decided you know it was time to go but get this ah this and this just really drives me nuts he left the child with jim jones at Jonestown. why i i don't know i mean now i know that jim jones was a very volatile man but I mean, maybe he held a gun on him or something and said he couldn't take the child. They would have to kill me for me to leave my kids there. You know, especially knowing what you know going on inside there. I I don't know. Now, um, it was also known that during that time period, Jim fathered another child with a temple member named um, Carolyn Layton. Now, in the fall of 1977, Timothy Stowen... And other former Temple members formed a group called Concerned Relatives because they all had family members that had remained in Jonestown. Stowen traveled to Washington, D.C. and met with several political leaders, and his plea caught the attention of a California congressman named Leo Ryan. And he wrote a letter on Stowen's behalf to the Guyanese Prime Minister Now, the group also filed a lawsuit against the temple for the return of of Stowen's son, who had been, you know, left at Jonestown. Well, things started quickly going downhill for Jim at this point. Many of his political contacts cut ties with him, while others were quick to defend him. In April of 1978, the concerned relatives groups, um, they sent packets that that contained um, documents, letters, and affidavits to the People's Temple, members of the press, and members of Congress. And in June of that same year, a lady by the name of um, Deborah Layton, she had escaped from the temple. She provided the group with information detailing crimes by the temple and the very poor living conditions in Johnstown. So it must have been pretty bad. Yeah. At this point, Jim was starting to get desperate. So he hired these two guys who were... Uh, conspiracy theorist they had written a, a JFK conspiracy theory their names was Mark Lane and Donald freed he wanted them to make a case that was a grand conspiracy against the temple by US intelligence agencies and he basically wanted to copycat Eldridge Cleaver who was a member of the Black Panthers and he had been able to come back to the United States after rebuilding his reputation. So basically what Jim wanted was them to build up this big conspiracy theory and have everybody thinking, oh, Jim's an okay guy. You know, it was just, uh, they were out to get him. So, okay, he's okay. Let's let him come back to the United States. Well, in the fall of 1978, that Congressman Ryan that I mentioned, um, he went to Jonestown to investigate the human rights abuse claims for himself and he took with him um relatives that uh relatives of the temple members um a camera crew from nbc and um a couple of reporters from different newspapers now when they all arrived jim had this big reception forum there you know um and three days later the visitors ended up leaving in a hurry after that congressman ryan was attacked with a knife by um a temple member named don sly now along with the visitors 15 temple members left also and jim didn't even try to stop them and so you know they probably thought well you know he's letting them go because we're here observing you know well once they reached the airstrip members of john's red brigade which was what he called his armed guards started shooting the gunmen killed congressman ryan and four others And at the same time, someone who they thought was defecting from the temple started firing a gun inside of the airplane. One of the NBC cameramen was able to capture the first few seconds of the shooting on film before he himself was killed. Now, later that very same day is when the massacre took place. Mm. Um... Over 900 inhabitants of Jonestown, including 304 children, died from what was believed to be cyanide poisoning. Until September 11, 2001, this was the single greatest loss of American civilians in a deliberate act. Later, the FBI uncovered, or recovered, a 45-minute-long audio recording of the poisoning in progress. On the recording, you can hear Jim telling Temple members that the Soviet Union would not allow them passage during the shooting at the airstrip, or due to the that shooting, they wouldn't let them make passage, because apparently the Temple had been negotiating with the Soviet Union for Jim and his followers to make an exodus, I guess, through the Soviet Union. Jim's reasoning for having them commit suicide was quoted as, men will parachute in on us in here on us and shoot some of our innocent babies and he also said they'll torture our children they'll torture some of our people here they'll torture our seniors his earlier words of hostile forces converting their children to fascism seemed valid enough for the parents to help their children commit suicide jim called this revolutionary suicide and they would do it by drinking flavor aid not Kool-Aid. You know how they, the saying is, don't drink the Kool-Aid? Yeah. It should be, don't drink the Flavor-Aid. Yeah, don't drink the flavor Yeah. Um, but anyway, there was packets of um, grape-flavored uh, Flavor-Aid found at the scene. And it had been mixed with the cyanide and a sedative. And now this was days before there was sam's club or costco um or even walmart i mean you know so how would you get that much flavor aid because i mean 900 people that's a lot of people to give to make make drinks for um or better yet how would you get that much cyanide and sedatives well i'm gonna tell you how you got the cyanide jim slick okay He obtained a jeweler's license, which allowed him to purchase cyanide in bulk, because apparently they use cyanide to clean gold. I didn't know that. So, he had been bringing in large shipments of it for a year, a few years before this mass suicide. So, I I mean, he, he's not, he might have been crazy, but he was not dumb by any means, you know? I mean, like I said at the beginning, he graduated high school early, so... I mean he was smart he was just crazy you know um also on that recording you can hear jim um like scolding those that were crying he would say stop these hysterics this is not the way for people who are socialist or communist to die no way for us to die we must die with some dignity His own wife, Marceline, protested killing the children, so she was physically restrained, and then she joined the other adults in killing herself. At the end of the recording, Jim is heard saying, We didn't commit suicide. We committed an act of revolutionary suicide, protesting the conditions of an inhumane world. Now, there was two guys that escaped the poisoning. Their names were Odell Rhodes and Stanley Clayton and they said that the children were first given the flavor aid by their own parents and then um they were all of them were told that the families were to lay down together i can't imagine knowingly handing my child something that's going to cause him to die i know i don't get it i just don't get I don't it, do it at all. so what happened to jim well he was found on the central stage in the pavilion he was resting on a pillow near his deck chair with a gunshot wound to his head that was consistent with suicide, according to the official autopsy that was conducted in December of 1978. James Warren Jones had died with his followers at the age of 47. That's like two years younger than I am right now. He did all of that. He did all of that before the age of 47. Like, and like, what have I done? No, <laughs> I've got a podcast, yo. I've got a podcast. And I got three beautiful children, three children, and a cute grandson, grandson, and a cat, a cat, two cats, two cats, a dragon, a dragon, a turtle. <sighs> but anyway, what did you think of that, Alex? Had you ever heard of that? I've not heard of that, but he's did he did all of that before fifty. Like, yeah, before he could get to fifty. So y'all never talked about this at school. No. See, I feel like there's a lot of stuff that y'all don't talk about in school that's just like scraped away. And like, I mean, I don't feel like, I, it, I mean, it's not like some parts of history, but I feel like it's still maybe like a social studies type thing that should have been. Discuss. I mean, I ain't saying give y'all a test on it and yeah. stuff like that. But I mean, I feel like it's need to know things, you know. Yeah. Um. I mean, nine hundred people. That's crazy. It is. Well, that's all that I've got for this episode. I really appreciate y'all's patience and listening to me tell this long story. Our goofiness at the beginning. Yes. Um. We just, you know, we'd be crazy like that sometimes. But anyway, y'all have a good rest of your week. Don't forget to come back Saturday for the um, Weekend Weird Files. And, of course, we'll have a whole new episode on Monday on Mystery mystery, Murder and Magic. I can't even think of the name of my own show. All right. Have a good one.